Eric, thanks for that prayer. Jennifer, thank you for reading God's Word. Uh, Nandri, appreciate you participating in that way. And uh, now we get to dig into God's Word just a bit. Uh, I want to remind you, of course, that Paul uh, was a pastor, and he cared about people. He was, a, he was a truth teller. We know there are different kinds of gifts that people have, and he told things just as they were, but his heart was set on these people. And he's writing to a, a group of people who did not know Christ. He spent time with them. He invested in them. He saw them grab hold of who Christ was and understand the basic message of the gospel. And they were living in a culture that had very different ways of thinking about what mattered the most. And as they wanted to walk with the Lord, he is giving them instructions about what it looks like for them to do that. What are the, what are the right things to do? He has, has a heart for these people, and he sees inside that church two basic camps, uh, two ways that people ha- were going, and this happens even today as well. Uh, there's a group of people who you might call hedonists, There are people who are thinking that now that we are in Christ, we have freedom to do whatever pleases us. And so the the question they might answer, like, what's the right thing to do in this situation? It's whatever pleases me. Uh, Those hedonists tended to have a perspective that this world is really kind of all that matters. We take the most of it right now. Uh, Eat and drink and be merry. And then on the other side, you had a group of people who were ascetics, you might call them legalists or something like that, who once they embraced Christ, they said, okay, now we need to put up a lot of uh, clear boundaries about how we live uh, and and make sure that we don't go outside those. And if you do that, it's, it's kind of a comfortable place to be because you can make sure that you're staying within a certain set of rules and ideas. And it's, it's kind of a safe place to be. But the problem, of course, is that each one of those extremes has issues. If you're somebody who's an ascetic or a legalist, you start adding more rules to make sure you're not breaking any. And it's very easy to look at somebody else and say, oh, they're not such a great person. So you become prideful and judgmental. If you're in this other camp, you're a hedonist or something, you're like, woohoo! Uh, let's do this, you know. Lord, help me to take things more seriously, especially parties and dancing. <laughs> Maybe something like that. Well, then the, the, the tendency could be people might look at you and say, how is your life any different than anybody else's? You know, what, what, what are you doing that's distinctive? And you're, you're abusing your freedom. Maybe you're treating sin a little bit lightly. Now, both of these camps existed inside the Corinthian church, and frankly, they exist in any culture at any time. So when we look at a text like this that's really a pointed text, they ask the question in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1, he's writing a letter to them, and he says, now about the matters you wrote to me. One was marriage. Do we get married? Do we not get married? Uh, and, and people who are engaged, should they stay engaged or should they leave? What about What's the right thing to do? And it seems to be a genuine question for them. They're writing to a person who invested them saying, what's the right thing to do? Now, if you today are a follower of Christ, hopefully you're asking the same question. 
a lot. What is the right thing to do? We made wristbands about it back, you know, 20, 20 years ago, and somebody made a lot of money. <laughs> WWJD. What would Jesus do? Right? I mean, it's, it's a good question to ask. What is the right thing to do? And oftentimes, we, we, we don't know. Uh, we're trying to wrestle with that. And really, Paul is addressing that. He's been addressing that. He's beginning to address it more and more in the Corinthian church. He's done that already in chapter 7. He's doing it more in the text today, and he'll continue doing it as well. You're asking a genuine question. What is the right thing to do? And he talks about doing the right thing. Maybe as it was being read, that came up to you. This person's doing the right thing, but so is that person. They make two different choices. And sometimes we grow heavy with the burden of what's the right thing to do. We're making it a little too difficult, probably. But it's a good question to ask. And I want to suggest to you that the key question, really, that, that needs to be asked from this text, but I think in general, as we approach life and these decisions come before us, is this. What is the right thing to do? And what is the right thing to do in light of my devotion to God in a fleeting world where my actions affect others? That's kind of a guiding principle that Paul gives us, really, I think, throughout chapter 7, that can be brought into a lot of situations in our own lives. And we're not talking about moral issues where there's maybe a clear right or wrong. We're talking about a lot of the decisions that guide life that we often wrestle with. Should I get married or should I not get married? Paul's saying, don't, you know, here's some things to consider. What, what about your devotion to God in a fleeting world where your actions, whether you do or don't, actually do affect somebody else? Those are kind of the things that we, we wrestle with on a, a, a generally. And, and Paul's giving us some kind of ways to think through it. So, in, again, in verses 29 through 31, then, we see Paul begin to address this. You know, what, what he says, the time is short, or the time is shortened, if you're in the ESV. And he basically says, look, if you want to do the right thing, then you have to factor in the fleeting nature of this world. That's what he says in these verses. If you say, okay, what's the right thing to do? Part of the equation is recognizing that this life you're living right now, it's pretty brief. And I know it doesn't feel like that. Sometimes it feels like it's going on forever, especially if you're stuck in something. But on the scope of eternity, when you open up a history book, how much of that history book starts with the time that you opened your eyes up and first realized you were alive? Probably not very much, unless you're doing a modern history book, which isn't even history, so to speak. There's a whole bunch of stuff that happened before you and I showed up. A lot. And there's a lot. If, if you think of eternity, all time before us, all time, and you're just a tiny little thing right there. I remember a mentor of mine who uh, was a, a business leader, and he was very involved in speaking on the speaking circuit around uh, the nation, and he always used to talk about living life in the dash. You know, there's, you, you go to, a, to the Mason Cemetery, and you'll see somebody, and they put born and died. And there's a little dash in between. And he's like, that's where you're living. 
you're living life in the dash. And it feels like forever sometimes, I know. It's not. And I don't want to, you know, lower your sense of value, but you're not around for very long. On the grand scheme of things, you and I, we're just a vapor. We're like, like the, the grass that just withers, and it's gone. And Paul's saying, what I mean, brothers, is the time is short on that grand scale. So live as, from now on, those who have wives should live as they had none. In other words, what he's saying is that your perspective of the fleeting nature, he says, this world in its present form is passing away. It does affect your view and your perspective on time. Time is short. Relationships. Those who have wives, as if they had none. Emotions, those who mourn, as if they did not. Those who were happy, as if they were not. And possessions, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. And underneath it, he's saying is, don't become so engrossed in those things that you think this world is all there is. Don't do it. You, if your perspective is so consumed with this, and it seems like here he's talking maybe to both camps a little bit, You've lost sight of the bigger picture. And if you lose sight of the bigger picture, it's hard for you to know the right thing to do. It muddies the waters a bit. Doing the right thing factors in the fleeting nature of this world. Hold loosely to the things of this life. In your view that this world and all that's in it is passing away, and what I love about Paul and the Bible is it, it does both things. It says, look, your life is just Small and short, but it does matter. You're, you're living against the, the, the thing of eternity, and there's a, a place that you're going to, but take advantage of the time now. It's not as if he says, focus only on that at the expense of this. He says both matter. So to the people who are so focused only on this world and these decisions that they're making, remember this world is not the way this world thinks shouldn't be the final factor in your decision-making process. It's passing away. So your, your view of this life and everything around you, it really does matter. I was reading uh, an article again with my students that I came across a while ago by a, a man who is a professor of bioethics in South Africa. He, he does a bio, has in charge of a bioethics center, and he argues for an antinatalist position I don't know if I've referred to this before, but antinatalism is a position that it's, you sh- it'd be better if you were never born. So you're doing the world harm by bringing children into the world. So he's making an argument for antinatalism against, you know, lo- babies being born. And his, if, you, if you read the article, the primary reason is because of suffering, since on the whole, most of us will suffer in life more than, than pleasure. You know, pleasure just goes away. You eat a meal, it's great for a couple minutes. And then you either get too full, that it's not so great after all, or you get hungry again, and you got to spend money, and you got to work to get money. And he's like, what's the point? He sees no value in doing it. And you might even be bringing a life in that's probably going to hurt other people as well. Shame on you. The name of the article is, Kids, just say no. Don't have them. 
That's a real perspective. This guy's teaching ethics, by the way, in South Africa. He's in charge of an entire center. So if, your view, if you don't think your perspective on this life and doing the right thing, you know what he says the right thing to do is? Don't have kids. Now, that's a very different perspective than when you open up the Bible and say, what is God's view of these things? And the people in Corinth are probably wrestling with those different worldviews coming in. What's the right thing to do? Well, he says, have a different perspective on these things. You know, Paul has a very different perspective. The Bible does, even on something like suffering. And it actually has, has a bearing on this statement here, the world and it's, it's, it's passing away. So suffering does have, if you're a Christian, if you're somebody who says yes to Christ, somebody who's like, I want to do the right thing, even the suffering in your life does have value. It does have meaning. It does have purpose against this other guy's position. You know, Paul elsewhere writes this, even about suffering, because you could kind of get a little discouraged when you're going through things. And this is in, uh, in the book of Hebrews. It's not Paul, actually, but... Probably not, anyway. Um, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly, that is the wrong reference. That is not Hebrews. And it is Paul, and it's 2 Corinthians 4. So the person who wrote that's wrong, which was me. I was obviously not, not th- I was thinking of two things at once. It is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which is to the same group of people. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So see how he values what is seen? It does have value, but it's temporary. The world and all this stuff's passing away. Your suffering, it's, it's not meaningless. On the grand scale of things, it's achieving something, a glory and a heaviness and a weight that far outweighs your suffering. So if you feel like you're suffering a ton, do you know how the weight of glory you get to experience later? I mean, the measure of your suffering on a scale, if you've suffered more, the beauty and the glory of not suffering is so much greater. See, that's a very different perspective than when you go through life and you're frustrated because the kids aren't sleeping. And you're like, Lord, don't you love me? He says, I love you so much, I'm granting you eternal rest that is to come. And every time you close your eyes and get a tiny wink of sleep, it's just a picture, a foretaste of the eternal rest found in me. So you can, when you close your eyes, think this is just a picture of what's coming. When you wake up and you look and you say, I got no deep sleep for the 20th day in a row. <laughs> it's coming. And, and it's, it's, not, it's not meaningless. Your effect, you're, 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 you're doing the, so when, when you come to, what do I do? What's the right thing? Part of it needs to factor in this world is passing away. What do I do with my money? You steward it as best. And you invest in things that are going to last forever. That shapes your perspective on what you do, if you have a little or if you have a lot. I know it doesn't seem like this is all happening very quickly uh, to me. The time is short. Like This was written thousands of years ago. Uh, Cranfield, a scholar, you know, suggests that maybe to think the way about this is, he says, the return of Christ is near. Not in the sense that it must necessarily occur within a few months or years, 
but in the sense that it may occur at any moment. And in the sense that since the decisive event of history has already taken place in the ministry, death, and resurrection, and ascension of Christ, all subsequent history is a kind of epilogue. Necessarily, in a real sense, short, even though it may last a very long time. Because this world's passing away, and there are things that happen historically, and we need to look at this life through that grid. Doing the right thing, then, when we consider it, does factor in, in the fleeting nature of this world. And then Paul goes on to say that uh, in the next few verses, doing the right thing keeps devotion to the Lord central. That's what he says. He, he talks about that several times in these passages. He says uh, in, in verse 34, you know, a married man has divided interests. And then this unmarried woman is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord. And in verse 35, I, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So his, at heart, what he's saying is, Devotion to the Lord is a central issue. And if you want to do the right thing, make sure that's central. Make sure that is something you're figuring in there. And Paul's already said kind of the, the, the normal course of things appears to be, you know, getting married and having kids. In, in chapter 7, he he's says, what about people who aren't getting married or, or those who are, are no longer married? So he's saying, well, there's some good things about that too. In fact, there are some things about that that are even better. If your desire is to be wholly devoted to the Lord, there's a, there's a way in which, as a single person, you can work that out in a way that's, that's different than if you're married. It's just you have more flexibility. You're, you're not thinking about the anniversary coming up or solving a problem through conflict that happened in communication or, or all the things that arise. So he's trying to, to, to raise the value of being single, but never at the expense of the beauty of being married. He's the same guy who wrote Ephesians chapter 5. He said, you want to know what it looks like for Christ to love the church? Consider a man and a woman in marriage. So he's not anti-marriage. He's not anti-natalist. <laughs> but he's pro, like Drew was saying last week, leveraging where you are, Finding contentment and making devotion central, devotion to the Lord. And we're very well aware that for some of us, then, we don't want, we, it's easy for us to fragment things, but we need a cohesive viewpoint. So if you are married and you have children, then you ask, what does it look like for us to be fully devoted to the Lord with those set of circumstances? And it's going to look different. If you feel like you're called to vocational ministry and you want to go over to Japan, it's very expensive. I have a friend who's lived in Japan for 20 years, and he's got five kids. Some of you know him, John File. And if he says, can you support me? Well, the, the amount of money to support him is significantly higher than a single person who's in Japan, and even more so than a single person who's in India in a remote village. You might have enough pocket change to support that person now. They're both called to a certain place, but when John has more barriers when he's raising funds than a person who's a single individual. And Paul says, don't disparage either of those things. Make sure that devotion to the Lord is central for each. That's, that's how uh, it seems we're to take these verses. Your interests are not to be divided. 
And you can in the scope, obviously, of normal life, whether you're married, kids or not. Miss the boat in both cases. What about a single person who's not making devotion to the Lord central? Just because you're single doesn't mean that's automatically going to occur. (laughs) Or a married person who then has the opportunity to experience and express some unique realities of the gospel that you wouldn't have otherwise if you didn't have children. I mean, you see, this is the beauty of Paul looking forward even to 1 Corinthians 12. Look, we're just, we all have a role in the kingdom. And we tend to look at our own role and struggle maybe to elevate it as better than somebody else's. Or maybe you're the kind of person who looks at it and says, I'm not as good as somebody else. I'm an armpit in the kingdom of God. (laughs) Armpits serve their purpose, people. We need you. Well, we need you. Might be pointing at myself. And Paul's saying when you want to do the right thing, make sure devotion to the Lord is central. I mean, you've heard of Brother Lawrence. I just think he's a great picture of somebody who worked in a, in a, I mean, he was a single guy, but he worked in the kitchen. And he found ways to glorify God even while he was washing dishes. He kept devotion to the Lord central. So the question for you, even looking back earlier in 1 Corinthians 7, is what does that look like for me right where I am? Am I making sure my interests are not divided? Part of doing the right thing, that should be a factor in your way of thinking through life. What is this saying about my view of the world? Is it passing away? But also, does it have value now? And also, am I keeping devotion to the Lord central? Paul says that's absolutely necessary. Now, some people have have maybe used texts like this who are married and have kids, and, and throughout the history of the church, there's plenty of people who, who say, okay, my devotion to the Lord matters more than anything else, and it's at the neglect of my family. So some of the great people like, who have books written about them and their, their mission work all throughout the world have left a trail of tears with their family. And Paul's kind of saying, you know, if you're that kind of person, you better factor it in <laughs> on the front end because one of the central commitments you've decided to make is to wife and children. And so that is, you need to redeem that and, and make the most of that and realize that that does come with some, some boundaries. But once you say, yes, that is a primary commitment. It's not, it's not the right thing or the wrong thing to do. It's just the thing that's in front of you. And you love God well in that context. I don't know how many of you have read the Poisonwood Bible. It's a, it's a fictional story by Barbara Kingsolver. But it actually, if you read... Missions history describes a lot of some people's experiences, like I'm suggesting. It's a man who took his family, a, a minister, to uh, Congo. An American minister went to Congo in 1959 with his wife and his, his daughters because he thinks he's doing the right thing. God's called him to preach the gospel. And he gets on the ground. He's got a very narrow view of what the gospel means. He, he's not very good at taking into account what things around him are are, are like, and he certainly doesn't pay attention to his family. By the end of the novel, of course, he's alienated everybody, and he's wandering around preaching the gospel like God's called him to do, and nobody's listening to him. But he dies believing he's doing the right thing, and all of his kids have been left in a trail of destruction, and his wife and his marriage is a disaster. 
as a result. But he thinks he's doing the right thing because he's fully devoted to the Lord. He's baptizing some new converts in rivers where there are crocodiles and they're scared stiff. Doesn't care. He's glorifying God. That's all that matters. He's doing the right thing. The reason it's called the Poisonwood Bible is because one of his messages he would repeat um, is he tried to pronounce, apparently, he would often call Jesus Bangala, which he was trying to say precious, and I'm not even sure if that's the right way to say it, but he mispronounced it, so it meant poison. Jesus is basically poison. He was so unaware of his, in his devotion to the Lord, he didn't take these other things into account, and See, you, you can say, my interests are divided to the Lord, and you can do all kinds of damage. So when you're considering the right thing, as we'll discuss, there's, there's more things to the equation. And Paul helps us think a little bit more about those, too, because finally, in these verses, he says, if you're concerned about doing the right thing, you have to consider others who are affected. I mean, this guy wasn't doing that, right, in the Poisonwood Bible. He only had... His idea of praising God and leaving it for everything in this trail of destruction. And he wasn't factoring, how do my actions affect others around me? And there too, this is a, a translation challenge in, in, uh, in this passage. If some of you maybe have Bibles that have footnotes, and is this the fiancé relationship or is this uh, a father giving away a daughter? If you have the NIV, for example, it has kind of the, the preferred translation for them. And then underneath another option, um, I would take it more as the, the fiancé relationship just based on, uh, on Paul saying, uh, married, uh, go, going on at the end, talk, talking about being bound to her husband as long as he lives. Seems like that's what he's discussing. But he, either way, it still has in mind the other person whether it's a father considering the daughter or a fiancé considering the fiancé, doing the right thing does involve asking how others are going to be affected in these actions, how you act toward others. That's in verse 36. If anyone thinks he's acting improperly, if he's getting along in years, feels he ought to marry, he should do what he wants. He's not sinning. It's not right or wrong, but you have to think about the other person. Verse 37 the man who settled the matter in his own, own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will. So part of this is like saying, okay, how, how am I controlling myself and how does it affect the other? When we think about doing the right thing, you sometimes think about the will of God. You know, Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 says, it's God's will that you should be, you, you should be moral, right? You should abstain from sexual immorality, learn to control yourselves, not like other people who don't know God. Because if you don't, then you'll be harming the other. So anytime you say, what's the right thing? You do factor into it, Paul's saying, how are others affected? Even how you commit to the other in verse 39. A woman's bound to her husband as long as he lives. It's a lifelong commitment. So when you're making those decisions and you're saying yes, you're saying that's what I'm stepping into. You, you factor that into your decision-making process. So just in general... Then, what is the right thing to do in light of my devotion to God in a fleeting world where my actions affect others? That may seem a little unwieldy. I don't know if that's going to stick in your back pocket and you'll carry it around all the time for every decision you make in life. But, I, you know, sometimes it seems to me the Bible just gives us kind of general principles that help guide our next steps. But there's no clear answer here. 
don't we all want that? Should I marry this person? And you're looking up in the sky for the answer. And it just doesn't seem to come. How do you make those kinds of decisions? Even with these things in mind, it's, it's challenging. But just let me, let me give a couple thoughts here, too, for, for you to, to chew on. I think, and there are probably more, but three factors to consider. Obviously, God's Word. We're reading 1 Corinthians 7. Paul's giving instructions. And we believe this is, and this is Hebrews 4. It's the Word of God, living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword. Maybe that's what I was thinking about. It, it helps divide and get us. What do we do? You know, if you're a follower of Christ, you ought to be asking, what's the right thing? Where do you get those instructions? From the horoscope? From TikTok? From the Inquirer? From your favorite news channel? I mean, ultimately speaking, where are you getting it? If this is God's word for us, then he says, this is what it looks like to live well. This is who you are. This is why suffering it matters and, and, and how I'll redeem it. You know, that this is why you have value, but you also have to realize you're not here very long. I mean, that all comes from God's word. We, we go there. That is our authority. But we're not alone. And I would suggest that another way we kind of wrestle with what's the right thing to do is in community and in context. When I say Community, I mean, the, this is the thing. Jesus says, look, you got, you've left mothers or brothers or sisters, you know, for the sake of the gospel. Don't worry. Look around. You've got tons of them. Everybody, this, the, you're my sister. You're my brother. You're my mother. I go to you for wisdom and counsel. What do I do? There's probably nothing you're facing that hasn't been faced before by somebody who can say, well, let me tell you what it was like for me. This is why we enter into relationships that are discipleship-oriented. You know, what, how do we do? How do we sort through this together? You have a community. Paul's writing this to a community, and it's a community in context. He's writing to a group of people in Corinth at a certain time. And those questions that we might ask today are different than the ones they would ask these are the ones that he's given us and to, to unpack and certainly the principles that we apply. But there's a context for even for us too. TikTok did not exist back in Corinth. How do we handle social media? It was not a question that they were asking on the streets at that day. That's unique to our time frame. And, and it could be even unique to where we are located. We're, we're in a certain place. There's a theology of place. God has us here at a time in history with all the people around us. And so we take that community and context into view. Even in worship, there's pieces of worship we call elements that are true for everything. You pray, you, you read God's word, it's, it's declared, uh, we sing. Those are elements. But there's also forms. The prayers can be uh, set prayers, maybe I read, or extemporaneous, and their circumstances. The length of prayer, right, might take into consideration where we are. A circumstance, for example, if I'm in the middle of a war zone and I say, let us have a time of prayer together, and we just circle around hands and things are being set off around us, it's probably not very wise at the moment, too. Nehemiah did that. There were times when Nehemiah had long times of prayer, and other times, he's like, Lord, help me. 
<laughs> as he was going in there. That's probably the kind that's going to happen when the missile's coming down on you too. All community in context. So I think some of us want to say, where's the answer? What's the right thing to do? Give it to me now, and I'll look 5,000 years ago and see, ah, that's what they did, without considering your community in context as well. Those principles are, are universal, but we get to work it out in space and time. I often think, um, I, I know I'm hounding social media because I didn't grow up with it. I often think, what's the next generation going to do with that? Because I don't know. And I'm not entirely sure. I, I'm just trying to catch up. What is going on here? And they're living right in the middle of it. I'm like, what are they going to do? You know what? If they're walking with the Lord, being guided by these principles, they'll figure it out. They'll, find, they'll, they'll, they'll be able to bring the gospel into their context. And that's exciting. Paul cares about that. 1 Corinthians 9, we'll talk about it quite a bit. And then the final thing to consider is the Holy Spirit. Paul talks a lot in this book about the Holy Spirit, a person who indwells us, who does give us light on doing the right thing. We are a people who are filled with his spirit. And he says in 2 Corinthians 3, I think this is interesting, and he's talking about Moses and the old covenant, but part of the role of the Holy Spirit is to lead us into freedom. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's another book he writes to these same group of people. So when we think about this, what's the right thing to do in the light of my devotion to God in a fleeting world where my actions affect others with a good deal of freedom? For those of you who weigh down all the time, did I make the right choice? Did I do the wrong thing? I, I, I was thinking, Lord, so I turned right up here and I turned left and I, I got in an accident. Chill. It's okay. That is the Lord's will for you right then, right? It's okay. You don't have to sit there and just sit there and wonder all the time. There's an incredible freedom that comes in these areas. You know, it's, it, some of us are racked with consume. You've got to take a deep breath and know that where the spirit, if you are being led into bondage, it's probably not God's spirit who's at work. It could be somebody else whispering to you. See, you always make bad choices. Nah. I've done my best before the Lord. And I've done, I, I, I'm going to claim freedom in this too. So it sounds like it's time for me to finish. <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's good. You're right. It's, it's, it's noon. It's time. I have a freedom to keep going on, but I'm going to stop because I, I agree. It is time. Uh, you know, as we just think about wrestling with doing the right thing, here's a specific context, you know, a specific decision, but those principles come out as well. And I think you want to do the right thing. I know I, know I do too. So, you know, maybe one of those elements is something you need to insert in there. And I, I think Paul's giving us wisdom for what that looks like. And he doesn't stop there. Next week in chapter 8, he continues talking about, you know, the choices that we have to make, because there are some difficult ones. How do we navigate through those? So I'm excited to look at that next week with you as well. Father, would you?